I need to give you a little bit of introduction before we read our scripture for this morning. When the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he did not yet know in Rome, he was introducing himself to them. And one of the things he said is, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation. And the word that I want to draw your attention to in that phrase is power. Paul says that the gospel is power, and that is true. And what we need to have is the understanding that power in and of itself is neutral. So the electricity that toasts your bread can also be used to kill someone. Power is neutral. The power of God is created and intended for good, but that power of the gospel is and has been misused. And so that power of the gospel, which was intended to bring salvation first for the Jewish people, it has been blasphemed and twisted and poisoned to become a force of oppression and destruction. And that has been the case and formed against many peoples, but the Jewish people certainly are one of them. The Christian church has been complicit in blaspheming the power of God so that it would bring oppression, death, and destruction to our Jewish siblings. And I say this to you before we read the scripture, because we're about to look at a piece of the story of the passion of Jesus, where members of Jesus's own faith community, the Jewish leaders, decided against Jesus. And there are some people who claim spiritual authority and declare the Jews killed Jesus. Though often confusingly, those same people will say that God killed Jesus. I'm not going to spend our precious time together unpacking bad theology, but if you're interested in how people go there and the dangerousness of it, call me. I have nothing but time to talk to you about it. But what I do want to say to you clearly and unequivocally before we even read the scripture, that if anyone ever tries to convince you that following Jesus requires you or releases you to hate or do violence against anybody or any group of people, you need to flee from them. And if anyone points to this passage in particular and says that it proves that the Jewish people, that we should have enmity against them or that they have some kind of particular guilt or, or that God is against them in a certain way, that person does not know Jesus, does not know the gospel. They are a thief because they've stolen the power of God for their own ends and a liar. And you need to flee from that teaching. So we're going to read this passage, and every time you hear the word the Jews, it would be good if in your head you substituted the words the Christians. Okay, what this is a passage about people of faith whose identity and experience and culture and, and 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 religion gave them expectations of who God was and how God was going to come into the world and what God would and wouldn't do. And when Christ came in fulfillment of God's promises, the people of faith did not recognize him because he did not conform to their expectations. So I need you to understand that the people in this passage, the Jews in this passage, they are not evil. They are not the enemy. They are the mirror. They are us. People of faith living in a violent world who encounter the salvation of God in many ways. Right before this passage, they have seen Jesus raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. 
And these people of faith living in a violent world who have encountered salvation in an unexpected form have to decide, is this God? And if it is, what does it mean? And what do I do? Hear these words of scripture. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, that's Lazarus's sister, and had seen what Jesus did, which is raise him from the dead, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You don't realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. And they kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests, and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Church, will you pray with me? God, I lift up to you a prayer from our brother Paul. God, I ask that your love may abound more and more in us in knowledge and in depth of insight so that we might be able to discern what is best, so that we might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. God, I pray that our love would be formed in knowledge of who you are, that as your children, we would understand what you were doing and that we would receive that knowledge and that understanding directly from you by the Holy Spirit. God, we offer up to you our faith in you. God, we ask that you would cleanse it. God, we ask that you would strip away what is not of you. God, we ask that you would show us your glory and teach us to love you more than we fear anything. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Who sets the limits? Of your life? Who do you believe has absolute power? What do you believe is the greatest force in reality? 
Now, if the children were still sitting up here for the children's sermon, they'd be looking at me with a blank look on their face. They'd be kind of bored. They wouldn't know what I was talking about, but they would know what answer I wanted them to give, right? They would say, God. (laughs) They would say, Jesus. (laughs) Who sets the limits of your life? Who determines for you what is possible or what is impossible? What do you believe has the greatest, and by greatest, I mean the strongest and the highest power in existence? Who do you put your trust in? We would all say God. And the people in the story that we just read, in the passage of scripture we just read, they would say the same thing. God is the highest power. God set the limits for my life. God is who I believe in most. You can't understand what is happening in this passage until you understand that all of the leaders who made this decision about Jesus, the decision to hand him over unto death, you can't understand what's happening in this passage until you understand that everyone involved is just like us. Because there's an easy way and a hard way to read this story. The easy way is always wrong. (laughs) But the easy way to read this story is to say it's just a story about some powerful, cynical, elite religious leaders who were hypocrites, who didn't really know God and didn't really love God. And they were jealous of Jesus and threatened by his power. They knew he was holy and they were evil and they decided to kill him because they didn't like him. And if you read the story this way, all you will learn is that evil people do terrible things and you're not evil. And so you will be sent out into the world ignorant and unaware and vulnerable. Or you can read the story the hard way, the challenging and uncomfortable way, which is to say the true way. That the men in this story were all children of the covenant. They were all people of faith. They believed in the God who had rescued their ancestors from slavery in the Egyptian empire. They believed in the covenant promises of God had given them and delivered them, kept those promises, given them a land flowing with milk and honey that was in fulfillment of God's covenant promise to their father, Abraham. But over the generations, the people had been conquered by one invading empire force after another. They had been led out of the promised land into exile. And their enemies said, your fate is your proof. Either your God isn't real or your God isn't very powerful or your God doesn't love you or your God doesn't keep his promises. But the prophets said, What has happened to you is a consequence of your own unfaithfulness. You didn't keep the covenant, so you didn't keep the land. Either way, from that day on, the people were not free. And even though over the generations they had been returned to their land, it wasn't the same. And afterwards, for generations, they lived in the promised land, but they didn't live free. It was just a series of brutal wars. And the names of the conquering empires changed, but the life of brutal taxation and violent power stayed the same. 
And so when the world's only superpower of that day named Rome took control of the whole known world, these men of faith accepted the deal that Rome made to all of their conquered vanquished territories. Rome said to them, hey, you can keep your little temple. You can keep your little faith and your little gods. We don't care. Believe whatever you want to. Just pay your taxes and accept that you belong to us now. You live under our authority and under our power. So swear your loyalty to us. We are the ultimate authority now and forever. And as long as you do that and pay your taxes, there's no trouble. But if you let your little faith give you ideas, if you try to liberate yourselves, if you even talk about a revolution, we will come in here and we will raise this place to the ground. We will destroy you. We will destroy and desecrate all of your sacred spaces. We will exile you and separate you from one another. We will scatter your people across the face of the earth. So obey us and we will give you privileges. Challenge us and we will end you and erase you from history. And life in Jesus's day was bearable under those terms. Rome was very good at its job. It knew exactly how far to push the people and still give them something to lose. But the challenge for these people of faith was their faith. Because the prophets who had told them that God was powerful and good, the prophets who had told them that they had lost the land because they had forsaken God's covenant also told them, that a day was coming when God would send them a Messiah, an anointed shepherd king who would be a son of David, who would redeem and restore the people. And once again, they would live in shalom in the land flowing with milk and honey, and they would fulfill in that day their covenant destiny. Through them, all nations on earth would be blessed. And so these men of faith were holding on. They were keeping the faith, and they were waiting and into that world comes Jesus. And he's teaching about mercy and judgment and shalom. And he's working miracles. He's cleansing lepers and opening the eyes of the blind. He's walking on water. He's feeding the thousands. He's teaching about the power of God. And now people are saying that he has raised Lazarus from the dead. So do you understand why those people of faith are saying in verse 47 and 8, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing miraculous signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come in and they will take both our temple and our nation away. Do you understand, church, that these men are not evil? They are scared. They live under the rule of the most powerful and brutal nation on earth. And when Rome thought that a territory was about to rebel, they made an example out of those people and their leaders. The crucifixion was not something that only happened one time to Jesus. It happened to everyone who dared to defy the ultimate authority of Rome. You could walk along a road and see a row of crucifixions on one side and on the other, like we see lampposts when we drive down a highway. Rome wanted everyone to know who was in charge and what would happen if you dared to try to upset the standing order. So they were saying... 
We have to protect ourselves from the threat. And the threat isn't Jesus. The threat is Rome. But Jesus is making them vulnerable to that brutal power. So they're standing saying, what can we do? And that's when Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks up. And he says, literally, you fools don't understand anything. We can't let this one man's actions make us all look like rebels. We can't let his signs make us put us all at risk. And not just our lives, but our temple, our faith will be destroyed. So it's better if this one man dies so that all of our people can be saved. And I need you to understand that Caiaphas isn't doing theology when he says that. He's speaking politics. He's saying we got to give this guy up to save everybody else. He's saying if we don't take care of this, Rome will turn against us and we don't stand a chance against their military power. So we have to do this to survive. So I will ask you again, who sets the limits of your life? What do you believe is the greatest power in creation? Because we say in this room and they said in that room, we don't say God. We all pray and sing the Psalms about the power of the name that there is no equal. There is no higher. There is no other. But in that room, they are facing the real threat, the immediate threat of the Roman military industrial complex. And they're saying, we can't risk it. We have to be prudent. We have to kill him. To protect ourselves, we have to turn him over to death in order to save our lives. And I want us to see that as much as these people of faith like us have centered their identity on God and their culture and their daily rituals of prayer and worship and offerings, in this moment, I need you to see who is setting the limits of their lives. And it's not the God who said in the covenant, thou shall not bear false witness. It's Rome who says, handle your business or we'll handle it for you. You got to see that the people in that room are people of faith who say we are for God, but we can't risk Rome. And please notice how nobody in this room has any expectation, any hope, or even a flicker of hope that if they refrain from evil, God will protect them. They don't even have a thought that there's a chance that God will keep God's promises to them. Because we'll sing about it in a sunny day on a sanctuary. But you find out what you really believe when it is a day like that. We will memorize the covenant and teach it to our children. We will practice tithing on mint and rue. But when covenant faithfulness puts your life at risk, we're out. So you can look down on the people in that room if you want to and think those are cowardly, hypocritical losers. But to me, I look at them and I see my own fearful soul. And all I can say is, I know, Lord, that the same fear and weakness and little faith is in me. All I can say is, lead me not into temptation and deliver me from evil. Because I do believe in the power of the goodness of God. But I also know the power of violence and evil and the power of fear. And just like my brothers in that room, my heart and my mind and my soul have been shaped by the powers and principalities of evil that are currently ruling in this fallen world. And I want us to notice that our brothers in that room, they were waiting on a savior to deliver them from evil. But when Jesus came into the world, feeding and healing and teaching and liberating and raising the dead, still with all of those signs, 
They had no hope that he could deliver them from Rome. They had seen the power of Rome. They understood it. And no matter how good and holy his signs were, they didn't have any expectations that someone like that could save them from the power of Rome's army. They could not put their trust in him in that moment. Why? Because they knew him. They knew that he was not promising to do violence to their enemies. So they did not believe that he could be their savior. They were waiting for a good guy with a gun or a sword. (laughs) They were waiting for a savior who fought with the weapons of their enemies, who used violence and power for good, meaning on their behalf against their enemies. And that's not Jesus. And that's not God. It never has been and it never will be. They weren't opposed to what Jesus was doing. That's what I need you to understand. They were not against what Jesus was doing. They just didn't believe it could save them from the real evil in their lives. So what power sets the limits of your life? What power do you believe in is the greatest? For most of us, even people of faith, that power is violence. We know violence. We know that force. We trust it. And we believe in it, which is why in that sacred room under threat, when they said, what are we going to do? The answer, according to the high priest, was simple. You don't know anything. What are we going to do? We're going to do violence strategically for good. That's the only power we have. It's the only power we believe in. So don't you think that you are better or holier than the people in that room? Because on this broken and blood-soaked earth, violence is the only power we know. And that's why we just weep and sigh and throw up our hands when another mass shooting happens. When another unarmed person is shot down by the police. When another unarmed, unmanned drone blows up a wedding party across the world. It's terrible. But what are we going to do? We have to keep ourselves safe. We have to use violence to protect ourselves from what? Violence. We keep thinking that if we just get better at it, if we just use it more morally, then it will make peace. But the tool shapes the hand. And when we become, we use violence, we become violent. And we keep praising God and reaching for guns. We do not know peace. And we cannot recognize salvation. This week I've been reading and listening to a lot of interviews with Bell Hooks. It's hard to describe who she is as a thinker. She's a philosopher. She's a womanist. She's a Kentuckian. (laughs) She's a brilliant author. She wrote like 95 books. (laughs) But her last three books were a trilogy about love. Because she wanted to reshape our human collective understanding and reform our common imagination. Cause she said all of our hero stories have to do with death and war and battles and conquering and individual authority. Think of some of you high schoolers probably have just been studying Joseph Campbell's the hero's myth. It's all about the one person who will triumph over evil by seizing power over enemies and destroying them. And bell hook says, I want to write about love Because I want to teach people to recognize its power. 
She wants to help us restore the search for love to its rightful heroic place at the center of our lives, to help us to learn to see the world clearly, the revelation that to choose love is heroic and it is the path to salvation. She wanted to help us conceive of how love is the power to save. And it's a power we're unfamiliar with. And to us, it looks like weakness. So we'll sing about it. We'll admire it. But we do not let love shape the limits of our lives. We do not recognize that love has the power to save us from real threats. Violence. We think that can save us from threats. Even the youngest kid in the sanctuary can imagine how violence could save us. They'll say, kill the bad guys, then we'll be safe. But love? How can love save us? How can love deliver us from evil? How can love keep us safe? How can we stake our lives and trust our children to the power of love? We can't trust it. We can't risk it because we don't understand it. We cannot imagine it, but we can behold it because what we see in this moment when our brothers put their trust in violence, when our brothers let their fear of violence set the limits of their faith, we can see our brothers in this moment choose to unleash the power of violence over our gentle Lord who will not let a flickering wick be snuffed, who will not let a bruised reed be broken. Look at how they send him up against the whole brutal power of Rome and it seems limitless and unbreakable. And he goes and he looks like a powerless lamb led to slaughter. What chance does he have? He cannot even save himself. How could one like that possibly save us from everything that stands against us? We do not understand the power of love. But if you look at the cross, you can look at it. They condemn him to death because they think that that's the greatest force there is. They think that death will stop his signs of a greatest power. They kill him to end him and to protect everyone from Rome's violence. Caiaphas says it's better for one man to die to save the whole nation. And John, the writer of the gospel, shows us that Caiaphas in that moment is an accidental prophet. He's like Balaam's ass. God fills his mouth with anointed truth. And in verse 51, John says he did not say this on his own, but as high priest, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, not against them, and not only for that nation, but also for all of the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Church, do you see God's promise to Abraham fulfilled in this moment? Do you see, church, that they only understood the power of violence and death and they thought they were condemning Jesus, but they were not because the power that was in him was greater than the power they were turning against him. They did not know or trust the goodness and power of God's love, but Jesus did. And Jesus walked to his death. His life was not taken from him. He gave his life to us. He laid it down, trusting in the goodness and power of love. He who used God's love to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead, he was not afraid of death because he knew it had no power at all, not next to the power of love. Jesus laid down his life to show us that we don't have to be afraid 
of the powers that seem ultimate to us. We don't need to fear evil or violence or death because there is a power that is greater than those, and it is a power that is for us, not against us. It is not a power we need to fear. It is a power we can trust. It is a power we can love because it is love. They thought death would destroy Jesus. And instead, death delivered us into life. Even the cross, which was designed to terrify and oppressed, was written into the story of God's liberating goodness and has become a sign of triumphant love. Nothing could stop God from fulfilling God's promise to redeem and restore all of God's children. So the question for us as we walk towards Easter, as we walk towards the cross, is what sets the limits of your life? What power do you actually believe is ultimate and triumphant? If the cross of Jesus Christ is at the center of your life, then it shows you how to answer those questions and it shapes your life. And we as people of faith who have not only love for Jesus, but understanding, we have to look at the cross and not see violence and destruction. You have to see it through the eyes of faith. And you have to understand that in that moment, there is love overcoming violence and emptying cruelty of its petty power. You have to look and see that death cannot end love, but love ends death. 